Welcome to Thinking Deeply About Primary Education, the podcast that makes time and space to really think about pedagogy, teaching and learning, professional development, anything of interest to time poor but enthusiasm-rich primary teachers. Today marks a special milestone into Dapper history, a glorious 100 episodes since its inception. So we thought, in a beautiful symmetry, as I was the first guest all those episodes ago, it is time for me to ask the questions to the one and only Kieran Mackle. So, Mr. Michael, we're going to jump right in. We're going to start with you uh, and your guesting numbers. So, are you ready? Is the question. Born ready. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Here we go. Then we're going to jump in. Years as a teacher. Fifteen. Number of schools. Six, but three of those were at the same time. First year group taught. Five. Last year group taught. Three. Most important year group. Now, I'm going to deviate like most of my guests because I think reception is the most important year group. But I think what happens between zero and four is almost more important. And I think that's where we should focus our attention. You might say stage zero, if you will. <laughs> stage zero covers zero to all, from birth to the end of reception. <laughs> favorite year group i think it's five it's got the best mathematics and it's more rewarding because i think the kids are slightly tougher than year six because year six have lots of responsibilities but year five are almost they feel as old as year six but they're not quite so i think you know you, you gotta put a shift in but you get to do a lot of fun stuff with them yeah, I, I agree with you there. I think you, you cross some real thresholds in maths in year five, like some really like juicy stuff you and you see in the, the sort of penny drop with them. And it's, it's quite nice, isn't it? I, I think it's a, a very good answer. Books written. Two. Blog posts. No idea. <laughs> Even I didn't read my blog. <laughs> my other people. <laughs> well, I've read your blog. And that's how I first come about meeting you, uh, uh, you know, a while back. I think, was it Golden Thread or Golden Spiral? Oh, the Golden uh, Spiral, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, and that was good content. And it, it, that still holds up well today. So um, I, was I think 14 or 15. I think we need to link that still at the end. It's <laughs> worth it. Episodes of Tadape. 100. All right. Appearances on other edgy podcasts. I mean, this is going to be really bad if I've forgotten, but I think it's three. I think Mind the Gap with Emma Turner and Tom Sherrington. Tips for Teachers with Craig Barton. And by the time this episode goes out, my episode with Dave Taylor on Teaching Together, which is the Complete Mathematics podcast. And so we've done one on Cardinality. I think that's going to November 10th, which should be around about the same time as this. Amazing. A plethora of high quality uh podcast say that you appeared on uh, and also created okay the final one in numbers uh tweets oh no idea how, how do you check that oh don't start you literally every week you've told someone how to check how to find the tweets you know how to find it how many tweets? <laughs> at the time of this interview 6912 respectable that's a respectable number <laughs> conservative if you will right Let's get into the questions then, Kim. 
So you're a teacher, an author, part of the Complete Maths team, host of Tadapi, and one third of the stunning new band, Papa's Antiportus. Tell us about, uh, you know, how you got where you are now. Give us a bit of an insight about your journey. So started a band when I was 14, with two friends, and one of us had to play bass. And my friend Kieran was a better guitar player than I was, so he was the guitarist. And um, he's actually a pretty prolific singer-songwriter at the minute. He's got a new album out. And um, yeah, so anybody listening should check out Kieran Lavery on Spotify. His first album in particular burned up my record player. It's beautiful stuff. But I was a lot more into punk music than those guys, so I I got popped up by a few fellas, and um, in the year above, and we and sort of joined their punk band, neo punk band. Um, we got as far as playing a few decent places in Belfast. Got this um, BBC Town thing where your fellow James from Busted was the, he was one of the guests, um, or not the guests, the judges. But we didn't make it to the TV part. Um, and then when I moved to England, the band broke up. And we were only really in it for the fun. But it was really hard to balance music and, and teaching. So bass took a, a back seat. Then I met you, and you met a drummer um, in the playground of your kid's school. It's a lot, less, a lot more weird when you said it out loud. Um, like that. <laughs> um, but we spent about a year rehearsing, burning the songs into our souls, and we've been gigging since last spring. Um, and the only rule of the band is don't get signed, which is pretty tough when you're as good as we are. Um, that's how I got here. <laughs> oh, I love it. I love it. Well, tell us about your your professional journey then through <laughs> through the school the school system now that you've given us the stunning insight on uh on how how perhaps Antiportis was formed let's uh, let's talk about how kieran got where he where he is today in terms of uh, your career mate that's very good hosting you put, bring me back to the question that was asked <laughs> don't be getting any ideas and um, right okay so i think i decided to want to be a teacher when i was about 10 years old i had a really really good year what it would be year six i think we called it was primary seven the year six teacher was fantastic and thought that this is what i want to do i want to help people the way he does sort of every decision i made from that point was sort of geared towards getting into one of the teacher training colleges back in in belfast um and essentially teaching is quite a difficult profession to join in ireland because of the size of the country the sort of the the way the system operates, you know, it's very much not a case that you will take a job, maybe work for four years and then move on to the next job like we would here. It's very much a case of once you take on the role of year five teacher, there's a very good chance in 30 years time you're still going to be year five teacher. So by the time I finished teacher training, I decided that I didn't want to become a supply teacher in Northern Ireland. I would prefer to get it to get a job straight away and get more experience. And so I moved to England. The the sort of on the careers day, they really sold Medway and they talked about Gillingham Football Club and I was a championship football club at the time. I mean, I feel like I've probably been mugged off in that respect because I've been to Gillingham quite a few times since. I feel like you've been hard, hard sold a little bit. No, no disrespect to anybody from Medway, but uh yeah, it's not quite Vegas. <laughs> Yeah, but it was then, you know, in the kind of area that I prefer to work because I wanted to work with children who needed education and who would really benefit long term from access to the highest quality education. Um, and so for 15 years, worked in worked in Medway, North Kent. I mean, Gravesend's not that far. 
from Medway, and um, it's all down to the M2. And over time, became an assistant head teacher, deputy head teacher. Then I was the sort of the the math specialist. And I think it was mathematics specialist collaboration lead for a project funded by the Worshipful Goldsmiths. And essentially, the idea was we had three schools who really needed to improve the aspirations of their community and their engagement with education, but also the outcomes for pupils. And so it was meant to be four years. We did five because of the pandemic, which was good because in I think February 2020, the Goldsmiths said we were going to extend this and because things are, are a bit rough at the minute, um, which helped me because job uncertainty during the pandemic would not have been nice. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I'm not very good at this. I'm better at asking the questions, Lloyd. Well, yeah, and, and during that time, wrote a couple of books because I, I quite enjoy that kind of thing. And yeah, just trying to support the education system become a little bit better every single day. I think you're being extremely modest there. And that was quite a... Uh... A quite a modest take on on what what is a very successful career so far. Yeah, I'm asking the questions this week, so you're gonna have to you're gonna have to uh, dig deep to to find those answers. And uh, and uh, yeah, but I appreciate I do appreciate uh, your how humble you are. So here at Tadapi, we ask every author this question: Why does the world need tackling misconceptions in primary mathematics? and thinking deeply about primary mathematics. I mean, it was only a matter of time before that question came my way, wasn't it? So, I mean, both have very similar starting points in that they're the culmination of years of similar conversations with different teachers. And so I thought, well, actually, I'm having this conversation so often, maybe it's worth writing the response down so that others who don't work with me immediately in my schools can benefit from my relative expertise. Now, let's qualify relative because, you know, I certainly, the more I learn, the more I feel like I don't know anything at all. But I do think that I can support other teachers with their teaching of mathematics. Um, so tackling misconceptions is essentially for teachers who understand that they can improve their subject knowledge, you know, to the point where, you know, maths isn't everyone's favorite subject, you know, and there are certain things that crop up that if you can avoid them, you know, we know about misconceptions and we know about how they will be there and you have to overwrite them, you'll never be able to remove them fully. If teachers are saying the right thing before those misconceptions develop, then you've got a better chance of, of teaching effectively, I think, and supporting those kids and not developing those misconceptions. And so, yeah, it's basically, here's what I think the subject knowledge is. Here are some activities and tasks that might support you in developing this. But essentially, it's like a, yeah, you, if you're, if you think, oh, I need to improve my fractions knowledge, there's a bit on fractions and you can, you can read about that. Thinking deeply of our primary mathematics is something similar because having been a sub math subject leader since about 2009, 2010, uh, I've supported a lot of teachers developing their practice. And I thought, well, if I could codify what I do and what I say to those teachers, then maybe more people can enjoy that that blueprint that I've sort of developed over the last X number of years. Um, and so essentially, if if you want to improve your teaching of mathematics, I think thinking deeply is a is a blueprint for that. And if you're a subject leader who wants to develop their teachers, well then you've got this codified guide through primary mathematics. And it's not it's not a comprehensive model. You know, there are some things I didn't touch because I know I don't know enough about, or I couldn't 
relate them or other people have written better about them. But I thought here, here's the, here are the things that if you do these things and if you get better at executing these behaviors, well, then you will become a better teacher of mathematics. And then I think it spirals from there. So we, I ended the book on how do you continue your professional development? And so hopefully by that point, teachers are all okay, let's, let's rock and roll. Um, and I think, you know, with the introduction of the ECF and with walkthroughs and things, I thought, oh, maybe is, is there a market for this? Is there a need for this? And actually, it's a lot more mathematics specific than sort of the market leaders and, and the things that people will go to for inspiration. So I think it, it complements those quite well. I, I think I said to Tom Sherrington, I remember walkthroughs being advertised and I was in the middle of writing thinking deeply. It was like April 2020. And I'm like, oh, no, I'm done for. This, this model's not going anywhere. But um, thankfully, that hasn't proven to be true. <laughs> I, I definitely think the, the, there's a place for your book in the market uh, and an important place for it. And like you say, whilst there's some tremendous stuff going on with walkthroughs and some of the content of the ECF and stuff is, is fantastic, like you say, the subject-specific knowledge, that is the domain-specific knowledge for maths that you that, that you bring to that book those books is you know it's 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 important and i think i think a lot of people are very grateful for you compiling them and and sharing them because they've uh, yeah very successful very very successful all right next question for you then mr mackle in terms of the process of finding the person to write the theme song uh, talk to me about who how you vetted them and sort of like how you uh, how how that how that happened and who, who decided and why? <laughs> I mean, the theme song was always going to be the most important part of the podcast. And so I thought, well, I've got to get someone who is exceptionally talented, maybe perhaps a multi-instrumentalist, <laughs> someone who, you know, knows composure um, and counterpoint like no other. When I text Hans Zimmer, he wasn't available. So I very quickly texted you and said, Lloyd, could you could you make me a theme tune? I want it to be a bit punky um, and about 30 seconds long. <laughs> I, I think that was the brief, wasn't it? I want an 8-bit punky vibe <laughs> intro for a podcast. <laughs> uh, I would I'd come on the first episode. Yeah, no worries. Yeah, it's fine. <laughs> um, anyway, you can cut all this out. <laughs> no, I think I think I should right. stay in. I mean, your, your household has been invaluable. I mean, the little heads behind us. They're all Katie's, Katie's doing, you know, this t-shirt, <laughs> Katie's doing as well, you know what I mean? Without you guys, it would literally be, you know, a word art. <laughs> clip, clip art, clippy special. <laughs> Let's get back to the serious stuff. Let's get back to the serious stuff. So what principles would you say define your approach to the effective teaching of mathematics? I mean, this is tough. Um, Berkeley Everett asked me in season three on the fly what my principles would be. I haven't gone back to listen, but I think they'd probably be pretty similar if I did. Because um, essentially, like I've said, thinking deeply about primary mathematics almost embodies everything that I value as a, as a minimum in the teaching of mathematics. But I think there, there are three things, three sort of guiding principles that I think can help people sort of focus what things are worth paying attention to and what things aren't, because there's a lot of information out there and to the point where we're saturated. I think the first is clarity. You know, so when we're sharing our understanding of mathematics, 
trying to support pupils in developing their understand of understanding of mathematics, I think we need to be crystal clear in what we say to the point that and this will come up in the in the in one of the later questions. We've got to really consider everything we say and how we say it, the models that we choose, and what precisely is important at, at any given moment. Because I think there's a fine line between, you know, the balance you've got to strike whenever you're thinking about the, the pupil's cognitive resources, the information you're providing with them, and how those two interact with each other. So I think we're thinking about, well, how can we be as clear as possible in what we say? Because I think if we do that, then we give our kids a fighting chance to make sense of mathematics. I think precision would be the second thing, being unbelievably mathematically precise about what it is we wish to say. You know, if we think about the language of mathematics and how sometimes one word can do the job of maybe 15 or 16 words when chosen correctly, you know, things like quotient, dividend, divisor, you know, they're a lot more common these days, but they weren't for a long time. And, you know, through if we allow people's the chance to articulate their own understanding with that level of accuracy, it comes from us being really precise about what we're doing and doing things for a reason as well in the classroom. So every decision I make during planning will have been measured against other possible decisions that I can make. And it's okay in this situation i'm going to do this because of this reason and then i'll review that and say well how did that go and then i think probably the most important one is responsiveness you know we the journey is mapped out long term you know maths is maths in some respect you know there are certain things you must learn but how each class and each people will respond to that is slightly unique in terms of you know the number of possible directions that a pupil's understanding or their response to a question might take you i think the the main principle is understanding that your job is to take on as much information as possible and then determine where you're going to go to next based on that information and i think the day i realized that made a massive difference to my practice because it doesn't matter necessarily about all the other stuff if you are taking on as much information as possible then choosing the right behavior, the right question, and then that continual back and forth, that's when you help pupils make incremental progress. So I think you've got to be clear, you've got to be precise, and you've got to be responsive. I mean, that was almost beautiful. <laughs> beautiful <laughs> uh, summary of what I, I would tend to agree of what 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 effective mathematics teaching looks like, in, in, you know, uh, on, on, on the level of principles. I, I mean, it struck me where you were saying there about particularly about the, about language and I was with my maths group just just before half term and we you know I was explaining to them about quotient and dividend and multiplier and um, it's funny because you'd said about uh, about using 16 words or whatever it was as opposed to one I was exact near enough exactly what a child had said to me well, this just stops us using all these words when we're trying to explain something in maths and I said yes exactly that you know we call a chair a chair in year three. You know, when when you when you learn what a chair is, so let's call things by their names. And I think that yeah, that just really really sort of came through really clearly there in, in your principles. But um, yeah, I, I would I'll definitely be going back to those things when I think about my planning for uh, going into next term. 
you spent some time uh, observing teaching in Singapore. How how did that influence your views on pedagogy and you know mathematics pedagogy as well? That's an interesting one. Uh, I spoke to Richard Selfridge about this after the Research Aid National Conference. We were having a chat. He spent a lot of time in France during an interview with with Richard and James. He spoke about how the, you know his his time exploring the French national education system, and I think. The thing that I said, I said to him and that I tell everyone is that Singapore is what it is and has the reputation it has because of the microsystem that they have created and that allows them to be, you know, quote unquote, successful. And I think it's almost unwise to try and extract one or two individual pieces from that because Right. So they have high expectations of their teachers and their development. They've got clear curricular guidance on a governmental level. Resources are quality assured on a quasi governmental level. So essentially, textbooks are printed by certain publishers, but they need Ministry of Education permission. And if they weren't to a certain standard, they wouldn't be published. So essentially, the Ministry of Education has handed over responsibility, but only in, in name and they put the, the work in, so to speak. Um, so you've got, yeah, resources are quality sure the teachers are teaching from. And then I think most importantly, they're a city state of, what, 5 million people? Um, and they've got a limited capacity for export. You know, natural resources and products aren't their national strength. So they need to invest in the education for citizens because it's the citizens that they export in terms of their work and things like technology and some of the sciences and stuff. Um, so you've got this very, very particular set of circumstances combined with the fact that I think one party has been in power for the last 50, 60, 70 years. I don't know how old the country is. And so with that, you've had a, an extended period of stability, rightly or wrongly, and that has allowed the education system to grow in the way it grows. So for us to take one thing um, and sort of utilize that in our practice comes with a ton of caveats. So when I think about my time in Singapore and the colleagues that I've met there, the friends that I made, the conversations I have with them, um, you know, I'm always thinking about the idea that a lot of the stuff that I saw has been happening closer to home for a long time as well. You know, there are some things about one of the textbooks was written by someone who studied at King's College in London um, X number of years ago. And so it's not as if there's anything new that we can take away. But I think we should focus on what we can do within our system. I think that's it. I mean, the one thing that I did take away was every teacher I observed didn't they, they didn't waste a word on things that weren't mathematics based. So whenever they were instructing the class, whenever they were talking to the pupils, everything was pertinent to that lesson. You know, it was almost military precision how you know, focus they were on what the task at hand was, what their aims were, and how they would get them there. And I think about my lessons, and I will go around the houses trying to explain something, and then how precise they were. They were making the very most every minute. And so I'd hazard almost the opposite is true in most cases, and sort of the further from Singapore you get. So if, if there were one thing I would recommend, or that I'd say I took from that time, was the idea that, um, you know, waste fewer words. You know, I think I made it into the book because watching that in action where, you know, they've got these, this great rapport with their pupils. But they know exactly where they want to take the pupils to. 
Yeah, I think that's that's, uh, that's a really really good way of explaining it, and and I think I would I would tend to agree as well. It, it, it's not a straightforward uh, comparison, is it? And I, I think we we've learned tremendous amounts from them. I I, I agree with you, and um, but but it, it it's become a bone of contention at times, isn't it? In terms of how people perceive perceive their success and and what that has meant to reform for mathematics in, in the UK as well but I yeah I think invaluable learning from like you say how, how just how precise they are going back to your to your principles like how how they do things so I suppose following on from that question Kieran you're an advocate for high quality textbooks tell us what you think they offer and what you say to those who see structured resources perhaps as, as a threat to teacher autonomy? I mean, that's a tough one because teacher autonomy is quite an emotive topic. And so I'm going to try and take myself out of any conversation around people's beliefs or how they think education should be um, and just respect to my experience. Because um, I, I think that the bulk of what we should be doing as teachers is thinking, you know, thinking about the challenge we provide for our pupils, thinking about the scaffold, the tasks, you know, right down to the questions we ask and the responses we want to elicit. And I think anything that can support with this should be grasped with both hands. Now, I think our priorities as a system have perhaps been in the wrong place for quite a long time. And I think when you have a system that rewards shiny, like an inspector that rewards displays and performances and and things akin to that, then we start to lose focus on what actually makes a difference and what makes teachers' lives better. So that you get to the point where there will be whole swathes of teachers and school leaders who have only ever known one way and it just happened that that one way was a way that burnt out you know at least a fifth of the new entrance into the profession within the first three to five years you know and so you get the survivorship bias where you know i was fine this must be the way we do it but i don't know i think i got lucky in that i struggled early on and then find out there might be a better, more cost-effective way to do things. And so that's the angle I come at it, come at it from. You know, it's, it's the idea that the system hasn't supported us, you know, because there was a time when six different activities in each lesson, you know, how many lessons teaching a day? How many activities is that? Was actually encouraging pupils to never really reach further than their already limited understanding. And so when you're told here's a high quality curriculum and supporting resources, I think when you sent over the document, one of the questions, it, it said um, structured resources or pre-structured resources. So I think that's important. Anything that will sort of support teachers in mapping out the journey and providing you with inspiration for the things you want to do in class mean that you can focus your attention on supporting all pupils in reaching the aspirations you have for them, you know, because I remember when we had the national strategy, I would sit down with my NQT mentor and we would map out the first 14 weeks of the year. 
every year. Oh, we're going to teach place value, then we're going to teach this, then we're going to teach this. Well, if I don't spend two days in August doing that, I can spend two days thinking about, well, if they don't understand this, what do I do? What's my next example? What are my alternative models? You know, and you know, so that that that's the real power is is giving you the time to do the things that effective teachers do, and that I hope a lot of people join the profession to do in the first place. You know, I certainly didn't become a teacher to laminate things. I'm not very good at laminating. It's never straight edge. I didn't become a teacher to mark books. You know, I became a teacher for the interactions in the classroom and for supporting pupils and learning things that they didn't previously know. You know, and I think when some of the cognitive burden has been taken from you, you've got more capacity. You know, I always joke about how I had her when I started teaching and very quickly I did not. And, you know, in my in my mind, it feels as if a small part of that was working on things that I that weren't necessary, but that. The, the powers that be encouraged in schools. And, you know, if I can do anything to support other teachers in having time for their families and also being really good at their jobs, well, that's that's what I want to do. You know, so I say I'm, I feel lucky that it was tough. It's I, I feel lucky because I've got an understanding of what it's like to struggle. So then now that I'm in a position of relative expertise, I can support other teachers in that in, when they're struggling or to prevent them from struggling in the in the first place if you look at something like the complete mathematics classroom um, and i know that i currently work for complete mathematics but in when, when they published thinking deeply about primary mathematics 2020 you know i mentioned this in there as well not only have you got a curricular sequence from 0 to 18 and it might go beyond 18 but what it does is it supports teachers in being more effective because the things that make the system work are the things that effective teachers need to do you know, like um, prerequisite quizzing, you know, finding out where pupils are before you go anywhere near the lesson. You know, when you when the, the resources you have do that for you or encourage you to do that well in advance, well, then you're already becoming a bit, a bit of a, a better teacher. And um, so then you're saving time. You can spend more time with your with your loved ones. You can be better at your job. And I think it's a bit masochistic to behave otherwise. I mean, like you said, it's an, it's an extremely, it can be an extremely emotive topic to talk about. And, but, but, but what you're saying there in terms of carving out time, professional time for people, it essentially allows people to be better at interacting with the subject knowledge that they need to know so well. And I, it, I guess it comes down to implementation then, doesn't it, from a leader's perspective, because potentially some of the mistrust around textbooks could, well, I would hazard a guess might stem from leaders not trusting teachers to use the time for professional development and to to be interacting with and to, to be doing all the things that you described but it's almost down to the leaders to ensure that that the people do use the time in that way you know you, look we freed you this time so we're gonna we're gonna focus on these things and directing that which is all the stuff you say in your book. So I think it's a, it's a really, really, um, it's a really, really important discussion. I think around those uh, around around textbooks, it's one that I, I think is there's more there's we've got way to we've got a way to go yet as a, as a country. I think uh, on uh, on on the use, but um, fascinating, Kieran.
I mean, it's easy to see why, because I've read reports from, I think 2003 was the earliest one, where there was a lot of derision in official reports on the use of textbooks and lessons. So we had this, this bank of knowledge, this almost a certain level of expertise across the country, you know, where people have been using them for a long time, knew how to use them really well. And then it wasn't the soup du jour anymore. And you've now got people have gone their whole careers thinking that it's it's a de-skilling of the profession. And actually, it's just a misalignment of what the profession skill set should be. And it, it's it's thinking about things on a on a what's, what's the word we use? Forensic level. You know, I'm being really forensic in your planning and how you prefer to move forward. I mean, we recorded a whole episode on textbooks and high quality curricula that I haven't used because I was because because it's so emotive. But I do think that we've set out our stall the whole way through these hundred episodes in terms of we have our priorities. We know what we think teachers should be spending their time on. So I'm hopefully people will understand that I'm not trying to be offensive, but more, you know, these are the things that we, we think are best spent our time on and um, because we are trying to support our colleagues in, in making the most of their time and becoming the best they can be. Yeah, I, t- I totally agree. I, I mean, like you said, it, it became a bad word at one point, you know, to, to, to even mention textbooks. And I don't think for one minute anybody listening thinks that you're, <laughs> you're coming at it from an angle of, uh, you know, of, of of trying to alienate people, make people feel, you know, I, I, I think what you've described there is is, is accurate and and uh, a strong argument for continuing to promote uh, the use of, of high quality textbooks in schools. So, Kieran, for five years, you led a project uh, on mathematics teaching in primary schools in Kent. What advice would you have uh, for someone who's taken the role? where they support the development of teachers to be better at teaching mathematics? What would you you say to them? So I get asked about this quite a lot. And I've been able to sort of generalize my answers. I think the first bit of advice that I always give people who are entering similar positions is to know what effective mathematics teaching looks like to you. Because it's okay me saying this is what I think math teaching should look like, or this is what I think mathematics should look like in your classroom but I'm not the person who's in there living and breathing it. You know, effective subject leader will be making the most of every opportunity to drive the subject forward, even if that's just conversations in the staff room. And so you've really got to believe in the model of mathematics or the, I don't know, the the intended model of mathematics that you have for your pupils. You know, what, what do pupils experience as they go through our school? What does that look like? What models, what images am I going to adopt? You know, because you can't adopt them all. And if you do adopt them all, it's probably not going to be as effective as if you'd been sort of more precise in your selection. And then, and from there, you can then start thinking about what it is you're actually going to to do. You know, so I'll be asked, you know, what textbook should I buy? What should I sign up for? Um, And it it really, it, it is down to, the the subject leader because if you're not on board and if your head teacher's not on board it's not going to go very far at all you know you'll probably have a change of leader at some point you probably have a change of resource you know you might sign up for something for a year and then move on because you haven't really invested in it and and 
you know, then you're in this perpetual cycle where you're changing things every every couple of years. You know, you need to give things time to bed and you need to be 100% certain why you're using what you're using. And, and that comes from what effective math teaching them and what the mathematical journey looks like. Then I think you've got to have the right tools and systems in place before you get, begin. You know, you always talk about prudence and whenever you come on the podcast, Lloyd, you know, what do I need to be successful? Is it that I provide my teachers with access to classroom like Neil does at um, that step? Or is it that I get this textbook or that textbook? Or am I using something else? You know, I'm sure there, there are limitless possibilities for what you can sign up for. But making sure you've got everything you need right down to the manipulatives you'll need, you know, because there's no point in saying, okay, well, we're going to use Cuisinart laws this year, but we've got one set between the whole school, you know, making sure that's in place. So I know what mathematics looks like. I've got the tools I need to execute my vision. And then you need to, what's the polite way to say this? Practice your best smile, because I think you're going to be on the front line and there can be a ton of stuff to wade through before you can actually support someone, particularly when the only constant they've experienced is change, when they've been beaten down on by this advisor or that expert or you know whatever the case may be. So you've, you've got to build the relationships and show people that you were there for the right reasons and that you're not making a value judgment on them as a person or as a teacher. You know, so I think and, and smiling goes a long way to that because, you know, the other person is, is going to be more emotive than you are. So I'd be fully prepared to put your emotions to one side and then approach this, okay, over time, we're going to become a really strong team because of the, the work I do now, you know, so because it, it's not plain sailing, particularly when schools have been sort of beaten down by, by a, a poor inspection or consecutive poor inspections. Um, and so thinking, okay. I need everybody with me. Everyone can be a really good teacher if they want to be and if they get the proper support. So what do I do? Um, so how can I help you? And typically, buy yourself a lot of credit, teach their class for them. You know, Put your money where your mouth is because telling people you need to do this, this, and this without showing them it, you know, I, I don't think it has as much impact I, I don't think it's fur really you know so yeah so the first thing i'll do is okay you know so if someone's thinking right oh I've, this class don't understand maths i've got kids who are working at year one level and they're never going to access this you know they won't behave well okay let's take let's teach a lesson together i'll teach the majority of it oh look that wasn't as bad as we thought it might be and then you've got an in and then you build from there you know but I, yeah but i do think you've got to you it's not going to be, you know, I don't rock around schools going, life is great. You know, I spend my time where my time is most needed. My excellent teachers, you know, some of my teachers in the first year of that last project were brilliant after maybe six months. And I didn't see them for the rest of the five years. They were happy to crack on, be research engaged, you know, to refine their practice, show other people for me. You know, that's not the life of a subject leader, you know, is rocking into the classes where everyone goes swimming all the time. I think it's about really thinking about who needs your support, why they need your support. And um, we don't have enough teachers in the system, so let's invest a bit of our time in those in, in those leaders and in those teachers, you know, um, because, yeah, we, we don't have a, 
sort of uh, an army of what, what was it? What were they trying to do? Um, it was an army of uh, of retired teachers coming back to sort out the tuition thing. Yeah, we, we don't we don't have that. Yeah, yeah it was it was. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. So practice your best smile because um, yeah. I don't know. Maybe it's easier for me because I I feel detached from my emotions in work anyway. But I like to put things to one side and say, okay, right, this is tougher for you than it is for me. You know, um, how can I help you? And then start with your school and where you want it to be in five years and work backwards. Not next year, not the year after, five years from now. What are we going to be really good at? What will we be a beacon in the, in the local community for? Just like you would in your lessons. You know, you plan backwards. You know, Peps did that great thread and David Goodwin turned it into a graphic um, sort of one page graphic. Um, and I think, yeah, the same applies for planning for your school. Okay, right. Here are like maybe the five or six things that really good schools, really effective teachers do. We're going to get better at this over the next 60 months. Then I would also look at component parts breaking things down into small parts and then building it back up again, just like I do things like primary mathematics and read every single day, you know, and listen to awesome podcasts, perhaps on double speed if you've fallen behind. Um, but, you know, how can I be a little bit better every day myself? And how can I support my teachers in understanding exactly what it is that effective practice looks like? And so always go to Daisy Christodoulou, break things down into small parts, and then we can put those parts together. And I think I talk a bit more about that on on tips for teachers with Craig Barton and um, wanted a bit more detail about about that idea and um, but definitely it uh, I think it, it really helps because then when teachers are feeling overwhelmed you can spend time thinking right it's just this tiny little bit right okay they're right they're using whiteboards it might be complete gobbledygook that they've written on the whiteboards but okay we've got that bit we've got a signal for when we're ready right okay now let's what do we do when we get the responses and then you'll literally model okay got this response, I'm going to do this, got this response, I'm going to do this. That whole group needs more, that whole group don't, you know? So, and then by the time you've done all that together, well, then you're being a responsive teacher during your instruction phase. Absolutely sage advice there. And and uh, to be to be quite honest, as I, as I was listening, I was thinking about so much about my own sort of uh, school development and, and thing, things that I do in my post as well. And there's so much overlap there in terms of like print the principles around supporting school improvement and supporting schools that need need to, to make that make the changes and i think you know like you said uh with craig on the on the episode is a fantastic episode if you haven't listened to it uh you're absolutely right in, in terms of breaking it down and we, we've just rolled sort of our pilot piloting our um our instructional coaching and um it, it just feeds into that exactly that the small incremental bits and pieces and it removes the threat from the it being such a daunting prospect for teachers to say well, I can't be this expert that you want me to be. Well, you don't have to be. Let's just focus on this little next tiny little bit. And then all the 1% sat up and all of a sudden they're 20% better than they were before, you know. And I think that's exactly what you're saying there, isn't it? And, uh, you know, amongst other absolute gold nuggets there um, for advice. Um, I, I know I've, I've written down quite a few bits <laughs> that you've uh, you've just said. I mean, the thing is, you're so, teaching your sex with Lucy every week, aren't you? You know? That goes yeah, yeah, that yeah, goes yeah. Yeah, and I, I, it's another, as, as yeah, another point I was, I was going to come back to. I think you put, put your money where your mouth is, and keep your boot on, keep your boots on the ground as a leader. Because I see so many, so many leaders and so many people in, in different roles and trusts and things where, where, they, where they just don't teach, and it's so easy to become quickly to sort of detached from reality when you're trying to do school improvement, and you forget 
what you're asking somebody to do um and if you're showing teachers look and being able to relate back to them and say well, when i do this when i call call when i when i was doing the show call and, and and this went wrong and you know it just there's so much more credibility around that and i think like it's something that's really important to lucy and i in terms of maintaining that with our staff and i would like to do that as long as i possibly can in my career if possible and um you know i think it's, it's something that, that is that's really important but uh, yeah superb advice there Kieran, as, as always so 99 red balloons i was going to say but <laughs> 99 episodes of tadape i mean wow it's, it's quite something isn't it um what this i mean this is an enormous question <laughs> it's like an enormous question but what have you learned from 99 episodes can you boil that down to something for us because uh, i i know i've learned obscene amounts in 99 episodes so i i just love love to hear what you uh what you take away from that this was the hardest question um i sat and thought about this for ages i mean every episode i take away three or four things to think about and, you know, I'm always sharing with you, like on WhatsApp or whatever, you know, oh, can't wait to share this episode. This person talks about X, Y, and Z. And then I'm trying to learn as much as possible about that. I've learned what prosody is. You know, that was something I had no idea what it was whenever I interviewed Chris. I learned about, you know, I, I knew what it was, but I didn't know it had a name. And so that, that, that I mean, that's the standout one factoid that I've learned is, is what that is. Um, but I think the, the big message from the first 99 episodes is I've learned just how generous teachers are with their time and their wisdom. You know, people who you would think, oh, my goodness, they must get inundated with with requests and calls and direct messages all the time. Thinking there's no way they're going to they're going to pick up the, the call whenever they whenever I reach out to them. But you know, no matter who they are, no matter how busy they are, you know, how um, sort of influential they are in the in the education world everybody's just the same they want to help other teachers and so i'll find myself talking to people and i'm thinking i'm totally out of my league here you know what what am, what am i what am i doing and um, but then when i put it back together and um, you know you get the same vibe you know where people are just happy to talk about things that interest them that engage them and they they really want to help other people and um, so that, that's what's really started to move with the first 99 um, and I can also tell what an um looks like just from looking at the waveform. <laughs> well, there'd be plenty of them from this episode with me because I am absolutely, absolutely terrible for ums. And, uh, and well, to be saying that, can you also identify identify a like because I'm also a, 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 a like person after everything. So if you can see that waveform as well, you'll uh, save yourself about two hours work. <laughs> I can I can identify when people tut just by looking at it. Um, and yours are very unique ums because they're in the middle of words and they're the most difficult to cut. <laughs> I, I have a nightmare for that. I have a nightmare, I'm a mid-word staller. Because <laughs> I, I haven't thought about what I want to say for the rest of the sentence at all. That's normally what's happening. I'm going, am I saying, what am I saying? So it's just uh, elongated with an um, yeah. <laughs> So, Kieran, why mathematics then? What attracted you? What attracts you to mathematics? Because, I mean, that's your specialism. Why? why? I mean, I think this is going to be an interesting one. Um, when I started teaching, I wasn't very good at teaching mathematics. 
and I realized I needed to improve. I don't like not being good at things. It's a trait that I passed down to my kids, you know, as frustrating as that <laughs> is as a, as a parent. And I thought I've got, I've got to get better. And I was very fortunate that there was a program run at the time called the, what was it, the Primary Math Mathematics Specialist Teacher, MAST, M, small a, S-T, sort of program. And it was two years. There was a bit of action research kind of thing. And each summer you had to submit a report and it was a sort of pass fail. And you got this postgraduate sort of diploma thing after it. But what it gave me the time to do was only think about mathematics. You know, only think about, well, what does the sequence look like in fraction? Why are these things in these positions? And it, this was just before the national curriculum draft came out. And so that really equipped me to look at the national curriculum and think about the decisions that had been made there. Whereas as a complete novice looking at the old 1997, 98 version of the curriculum, I would just go to the attainment targets at the back and make a list of things I needed to teach. And just, you know, here's level three. Bop, 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 bop. Done. Level three, done. Let's move on to level four. Bop, 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 bop. You know, let's teach shape and space next year. And um, that kind of thing. Um, so as as I when I took that on, more and more opportunities presented themselves. You know, so uh, Janine Allen, who now runs the maths hub in Kent, I think she sent me an email saying there's an opportunity for SLEs to go to uh, Shanghai, sent it to my head teacher thinking, oh, they're never going to let me go to China for a week in the middle of the term. And they're all, yeah, go for it. And so that was a chance to see another education system, to talk to 50 other sort of math experts, you know, across different phases and and uh, geographic areas. And then I think about that time, I said, oh, okay, well, maybe I've got enough. I haven't, you know, the SLE work was basically supporting other middle leaders who wanted to support their schools. Thinking, okay, I've got enough in me for a book. I think we could, you know, write that down. Um, and then the closer to headship I got, the less interested I was in headship. You know, I, to, I think I said it in one of the episodes recently how much respect I have for head teachers, but it's not a job I ever want to do. You know, my passion is for pedagogy, teaching and learning, that sort of face-to-face -face interaction with teachers and with them, um, with pupils. And so, you know, I look at, you know, my NQT mentor, he and I are still really good friends. And so I've seen him become a really effective head teacher. But I know there's parts of his job I couldn't do, you know, when he's dealing with safeguarding things, when he's dealing with, um, you know, the logistics, the stuff you deal with on a day to day basis, you know. Um, so I thought, OK, well, I've got reasonably good at teaching maths. I've got reasonably good at supporting others in the teaching of maths. Maybe there's a career here. Um, and as luck would have it, the sort of project with the goldsmiths arrived. And, um, you know, there was a two day application process, had to go through it, you know, all the classic um, sort of head teacher tasks, looking at raise online and making a judgment about the school based on what 300 odd pages or whatever it was at the time. I can't, I can't even remember exactly. Um, and yeah, I think just very fortunate that I'm allowed to continue. Um, to think about mathematics and think about the things that I'm really passionate about, and hopefully they make a difference um, in the world that we that we live in. That was the question, wasn't it? Um, why maths? <laughs> Absolutely, and uh, long long may it continue. Is what I say is long long may your uh, your venture into the mathematics world continue because it's uh, important contributions I would say to the profession. So uh, brilliant. 
So what's next then? What's next for for you, for your career, for Tadape? What's coming around the corner? So I've just joined the math team at Complete Maths. Get to talk about mathematics education with people who know more about mathematics than I do. I've been working on and off with them for quite a while. Did some CPD college courses. I was working with Johnny Hall. Did a lot of the tutor stuff first time round with them, Stuart. And, you know, having worked with a few different um, sort of groups, they, they really left a, an impression on me in terms of how they operate and their sort of mission statement. For Tadape, I think the chat episodes are the most manageable, um, but there's a lot to be gained from the seasons, not least so that people can remember that Chris Such isn't the host for a few months. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I, where do you, I, I have to bring this up. You, you referred to what is the, as the Anton Deck of education, if I, if I, if I remember rightly from what, from, by Mr. Sherrington, I believe. So. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was him or Emma. Yeah, Chris says he's the left hand left hand side of Ant, and I'm the right hand side of Decker, and vice versa. Something like that there. <laughs> um, <laughs> season six earmarked for the summer. Um, but so at the minute, I'm scoping out interesting guests and developing sort of plans to push what the boundaries of what's possible with long form education podcast format. Um, and I think the biggest thing on the horizon is a 12-hour live stream on Friday the 30th of December. And um, that's the one we're going to try and raise money for Belindra, um, which is a palliative care charity that your your dad has very close to his heart um, and something I care about too. So um, hopefully we're going to be able to put together something entertaining, informative, um, in need of a, of a great cause. Um, but the, the big picture remains the same. 20 years. 1,040 consecutive weeks of glorious podcast. <laughs> I am here for that. I'm absolutely here for that. Amazing. Can you imagine so, how much we'll be by the time we get to episode 1,000? <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Tadape, episode 1,955,672. We give up. <laughs> <laughs> So if Tadape was to cease to exist tomorrow, Kieran, and it, it just was no more, what would you miss the most? And, you know, what would be the one thing about about its run that you, you, you would, could say you, you were the most proud of? I don't think I can make one. I've got a few. I think I'd miss the interactions with our listeners. You know, I regularly have chats with people just out of the blue about various different things. Always really interesting making friends with new people. You know, it's amazing, you know, complete strangers before episodes, but then get on like a house on fire and then they continue. I'd miss that it's a vessel for my restlessness. And I probably have to think about how else am I going to expend that, expend that energy. But yeah, but I mean, I'd miss feeling like we're doing something important. You know, I know it's something people do in their spare time, but I you know, there, there are definite conversations I have with people where things that you've said have shaped how people behave in schools or things that Shannon has said have shaped someone's approach to the teaching of mathematics or, you know, Neil and geography and or not, not necessarily just geography, curriculum in general or, you know, any of the episodes, there will be a, 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 a conversation you can match up to where 
you know, it has changed how someone has behaved. You know, someone's got a job because they've they've focused on X, Y, and Z. And, and I think, yeah, I'd miss that because it feels good to to sort of help our our colleagues. I think when we look back at all those episodes ago, back to episode one where you and I sat down um, that time in September and said, let's have a go at doing some questions and talking about education for a little bit and and seeing where this goes. I don't think we could have, have dreamed of uh, the, the success that the, the, the podcast has had. And I think that has largely been down to the fact that you've worked tirelessly to put this content out every single week for teachers. And I, I've had a couple of fleeting bits and pieces here and there, but you've consistently delivered uh, free CPD for teachers every single week uh, for 99 episodes. And that is something which we all have families, we all have commitments and life is throws all sorts at you. But this still continues to be a constant and continues to be there for people on a Saturday morning. So I think I speak on behalf of all of our listenership uh, and saying thank you for the work you do for the podcast um, and that that long may it continue for another 99 uh, at plus one, making it 200, because I just realized <laughs> I said 99 instead of 100. So that's, that's a bit awkward, but sort of mathsy as well. So And, and it also lightens it because it got a bit mushy there, didn't it? So, um, but no, seriously, <laughs> seriously. <laughs> Um, a massive thank you to you, and I, like a gen, like Andrew said, I, I I hope this continues to thrive. We continue to speak to new voices in education. We continue to seek out debate and challenge, and we continue to further develop ourselves as practitioners through through this podcast. Because I know for for one thing, it's 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 had an, a significant impact on my career um, to date, and 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 I'm sure that is the case for for many other people listening as well. So uh, that brings us to the end of the of the interview. Okay? So just trying to remember what we do at the end. I think it's just all that's left to say is, is, is thank you very much for uh, for coming on. Thank you. Always a pleasure. And to everyone at home, until next time, thanks for listening. Nice work. You didn't ask me what my thunderbolt was, so you'll have to wait until episode oh. two for that. <laughs>